I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 7 through 11 this morning. As Mark was praying, I was praying with him. I was also thinking that there is no place that I would rather be than among God's people this morning. And there is nothing that I would rather do than to be worshiping God this morning. And there's nothing more than in worshiping God that I'd want to do than open up His Word, read it, and study it to see what He has to say to us. Amen? First Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Peter says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, Let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Before uh, the GPS device became popular, it was popular or it was common for people to be on a trip and get lost. It's still common for people to get lost uh, this day, but it's far less common. But many times over the years when uh, Jamie and I have been traveling to a destination we've never been to, on a road that we've never traveled on, um, curious things have happened. I remember one time in seminary, Jamie and I were uh, with another couple, and Carson was with us as a baby, and we were going uh, to Lake Arrowhead in, uh, in California. It was a winter retreat place. We were taking the weekend for a winter retreat. And we arrived in the area we thought we were supposed to be on the road that we, we thought we were supposed to be on. And as we traveled up and down the road, we could not find the exact address, the exact number of the cabin that we were looking for. But we found one that was close. And so I volunteered to get out of the car. It's the dead of winter. It's the dead of night. It's late, close to midnight. And we've been traveling up and down this road. And I said, I'll go check it out. And so I got out of the car, walked up the driveway, stepped up on the deck. And my hand reached out with the key in it to see if the key would work in the door. And all of a sudden, someone fired a gun from across the street. Boom! I ran back into the car, I shut the door, and I said, I don't think this is it. (laughs) We were on the wrong road. We were in the wrong town. It had the same road uh, name, but we were in a town over. And so we were on the wrong road. But I remember also, Jamie and I were um, hiking in the Smoky Mountains one time. And I think I've shared part of this story before, but um, I had planned to hike up to the top of Mount LeConte. Some of you have hiked up the top of Mount LeConte from the Rainbow Fall section. And so we made it up to the top in a number of hours, but when we got up there, um, it was December, and it was 3.30, 
and it gets dark at 5. And so um, we had to run down the mountain that took us about four and a half hours to get up. And as we got uh, uh, close, but still about a mile away, it got pitch black dark. And we could not see. There were some stars in the uh, sky, but not many. And we began to get nervous. We thought about turning around. And at that time, the trail started splintering off to the right and to the left. If you ever traveled that, you know that there are multiple trails that, that uh, are kind of in that first mile of the hike. And Jamie and I uh, were nervous. It was a very scary event. But uh, we prayed. We trusted my sense of direct. I trusted my sense of direction. Um, and I mean that very seriously. And we stayed the course that I felt like we should be on. And literally an hour later, we found the trailhead and we saw our 1994 Toyota Corolla. It was a a very relieving moment. Now, just think about that. In the first scenario, we were on the wrong road, thinking we were on the right road, but it almost cost us. In the second scenario, we were on the right road, but because of the scariness and the difficulty that we were experiencing, we wanted to kind of venture off to the right or to the left or maybe even retreat, but we stayed the course and we ultimately were rewarded for that. Peter, in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4, is saying, you're on the gospel road. You're on the right road. If you love the gospel and you love the God of the gospel, then stay on that road. Because The road you used to be on was the wrong one. All right? It was a road to perdition. It was a road to death. And that kind of road is a life of lewdness and lust and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. And I'm telling you, don't go back on that road because it will cost you. But if you stay on the gospel road, no matter how difficult it is, sometimes no matter how bitter it is, I'm telling you right now, it's the right road. And so as as he transitions from verse 6 into verse 7 through 11, he wants to have that in our mind. And he's saying, listen, you're going to suffer on the gospel road, but when you suffer, don't retreat. When you suffer, don't turn around. Don't go to the right. Don't go to the left. Don't go back. He's saying you're on the right road. And he's going to tell you why you need to stay there. And he's saying what you need to do while you're on the right road. So this morning, I want to give you three areas of serious contemplation. Three areas of serious contemplation. You might want to write these down because it might not be as clear as it normally is, clearly defined in in the sermon uh, itself. The reality, the response, and the result. The reality, the response, and the result. Those are three areas for serious contemplation regarding staying on the gospel road. The first one is the reality. We see it in the very first clause of verse 7. He says, the end of all things is at hand. He's building on verses 5 and 6 where he's talked about judgment. And he's saying judgment is near. The day of reckoning is upon us. It's time to stand up and be accountable. We are proverbially at the finish line. And we don't know when we're going to cross. But it is here. If, you were, if, he, if Peter was an athlete, he would be saying it's game time. All right? That, that's the nature of, of the moment in which we live. Now, y'all, 
What Peter, I think, would want us to do would be to understand the unfolding of redemptive history. He'd want us to understand it, okay? So uh, we can think about all of history, the history of everything, in kind of a few big ways. We can think of pre-creation, creation, fall, redemption, and ultimately the return of Christ. All right? And so in pre-creation, the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit lived in harmony and in fellowship and communion and in love and in holiness with each other forever and ever and ever in eternity past. It's pre-creation. It was a glorious and blessed union and experience between the, in, in our triune God. But out of, out of love, out of grace, and out of a plan for glory, God created the universe. He created the, the earth. He created angels. He created animals. And He created mankind. And He stamped His image on mankind. And indifferent to all the other stuff He created, He planted eternity in the hearts of men. And he says, I want these to be my special creation, to enjoy fellowship with me, to love me, and to enjoy all the blessings of being in a right relationship with me. And it was a glorious thing. But man didn't like it. He wanted glory for himself. And so we've all read Genesis chapter 3, the fall, where Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God's goodness. And in that rebellion, it cast the entire world into a curse. And I'm telling you, that world has been under the curse of God ever since. Such that every man and every woman and every boy and every girl has lived under the curse of sin and in the depravity of sin and the difficulty that it brings. But even in the midst of that, God created covenants. He made a covenant with Noah. He made a covenant with... with, um, with Abraham, he made a covenant with David that was going to ultimately usher in what that main aspect of, uh, of stage of life, and that is redemption. And, and Phil talked about it this morning, and it's the redemption in which God the Son came down to earth and took on human flesh and lived righteously. And then he died sacrificially on our behalf. And then he rose powerfully from the dead. And then listen, y'all, He ascended. He was taken up into glory. As the disciples and even Peter were standing right beside him, he was taken up into glory. They they saw Jesus like he was standing on the ground and he was looking at them and teaching at them one moment and then the next moment they literally see him floating in the air and captured by a Shekinah cloud of glory. And they are completely bumfuzzled and astonished and they don't know what to do. And two men in white who are angels said, guys, don't worry about that. Because just as you saw him go up into heaven, he's going to return back. Peter is living with that reality, with that reminder in his head at all times that those guys said that Jesus is going to return. He's going to come back. All right. And that's. That is the last major stage of what's going to happen in all of history. It's going to be the return of Jesus Christ. And listen, y'all, he's not going to return as a suffering servant. He's going to return as a sovereign king and the ultimate judge. 
That day is coming, and Peter is saying the end of all things is at hand. Take your Bibles, if you've got them open, look back at chapter 1. Peter is so excited about the return of Christ. He's saying you are kept, look at uh, chapter 1, verse 5. He says you're kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, You've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, listen, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at what? The revelation of Jesus Christ. Look over at chapter 4, beyond our text today, in verse 13. He says, listen, you rejoice to the extent that you participate in Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is what? Revealed. You may be glad with exceeding joy. Skip to verse 17. He says, The time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who don't obey the gospel of God? He doesn't say here, oh, there's a thousand different things that have to take place and there's no way that Jesus could come back. No, he's saying the time is at hand. It is here for judgment to begin. And then look over at chapter 5, verse 4. He says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. And then in verse 10, look at it. He says, may the God of all grace, who's called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you've suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Let me tell you, the undercurrent of the letter of 1 Peter is the return of Jesus Christ. The undercurrent of 1 Peter is the judgment that's coming in the person of Jesus Christ as a sovereign king and as an ultimate judge. And so when he says the end of all things is at hand, he's not saying that everything is going to cease to exist. When he says the end of all things is near, he's saying everything as we know it is about to cease to exist and something totally new, something totally glorious, and something totally ultimate is about to happen. When I was playing high school football, the calendar year would start January and we would do winter workouts. And those were rough times in the weight room and out on the field on cold, balmy days trying to get better. And winter workouts would transition into spring training in which we practiced and hit each other and worked on plays and were preparing for the season that was coming. And then spring training would then transition into summer workouts and weightlifting and those kinds of things. And you had to be up at the weight room like 24 times during the summer to get your workouts in, in preparation for the season that was coming. And then we would start practice and we would immediately go into two-a-days. And we would practice for hours in the morning and then hours in the evening in preparation for the season that was coming. And then school would come and we would practice every afternoon from three until in preparation for the season that was coming. And then game week would come, and we would practice for that, that one team in the, for the first week, and we would practice every afternoon. That would lead into Friday. Friday, we would wear our game jerseys to school, and then we would have a pep rally at the end of school, and the band would play, and the cheerleaders would cheer, and skits would happen, and we would all get ushered in, and everybody in the school is preparing for the game that was coming. The team would go to the, the pregame meal, and we would eat a meal 
in preparation for the game that's coming, then we would go down to the field house and rest and try to nap and prepare our minds and our hearts. And then ultimately we would get dressed, we would go out in the field, we would work out, we would stretch, we'd toss the ball around, we'd get prepared, then we'd go back into the field house. We'd make our final game plans And then we would all get our helmets on, our shoulder pads on. We would all huddle up right at the doors of the field house, and we would wait. And it was quiet. We were all looking around, and we were anticipating the moment. And the moment we were anticipating was the marching band playing the Eye of the Tiger. Dun, 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 dun. But when we heard that sound... The doors flew open, and we ran onto the field, broke through the breakout, and the lights were on, the fans were standing, the field was painted, the referees are ready, the opposing team is on the sideline, and the end of all that preparation, everything that we had gone through from January all the way to September was over. The game was here. I want to tell you something. Peter is saying, That everything that leads up to the ultimate glorious experience of Jesus Christ and his reign has happened. It's over. We're in the waiting period and he's saying the end of all that is here and a whole new life and a whole new glory is about to happen. And the question is, are you ready? Are you ready? Because I will tell you this. The quality of my football team's preparation from January to September dictated the quality of our experience on a Friday night. And Peter's about to say, the quality of your preparation for the end of all things is going to dictate the quality of your experience when you behold the Savior who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the impetus behind what he's about to tell us. So look at the response. He says, therefore... Be serious and watchful in your prayers. Now, I just want to tell you, the response is this. Pray for one another, love one another, and minister to one another. Pray for one another, love one another, and minister to one another. And he starts with prayer. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Be serious literally means to be sober-minded. To have your mind sharp and clear and prepared for spiritual battle. Watchfulness means self-controlled. It means to be aware of the time in which you live, aware of the people who are around you, aware of the reality that Christ may return any moment. And this seriousness and this watchfulness will lead you into prayerfulness, and it will equip you for prayerfulness. I think the ESV and the NIV translate this very well because they say, be serious and watchful unto prayer, that it may lead you to prayer. See, the idea is that if you're sober in your mind and you're self-controlled in your thinking, what you're going to understand is, I need to pray. Now, I asked the question when I was studying this week, if if the end of all things is at near, Peter, if it's at hand, then why don't you say, therefore, go evangelize? Therefore, go and do this or that? I think the answer to that question is found partially, at least, in Peter's experience. You guys remember when... Last week we talked about Peter said, oh, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You remember that? But Peter didn't understand everything that he needed to understand. He, he knew that Christ was glorious, but he didn't really embrace the suffering aspect of Christ's glory. Let me tell you, it wasn't too long after that 
that after the upper room experience where Jesus washed the disciples' feet, Peter and the disciples find themselves in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus takes three of the guys, including Peter, and he says, would you pray? Would you pray? Oh, yeah, we'll pray. We'll pray. Let's pray. And Jesus went on a little further, and he began to pour his heart out to God. And the three guys, including Peter, they, they start to pray, but what do they actually do? Talk to me. They fall asleep. And so Peter prays more, or Jesus prays more, but then he goes back to the same guys, and he tells Peter, he said, hey, what are you guys doing? This is, a big, this is a big moment in the history of the world. I need you to pray. Pray for me. Pray for yourselves. Please pray. And so Jesus goes back and prays on his own, and what do Peter and his cronies do? They fall asleep. And so then, then the, the mob comes and sees Jesus. And what does Peter do? Peter takes a knife and he cuts a guy's ear off. And then a few hours later, what does Peter do? He's in and around the area where Jesus is being ridiculed and mocked and everything else and say, hey, you're a follower of him. You know him. You're a disciple of his. And he says, oh, no, I'm not. He said, oh, yes, you are. He said, oh, no, I'm not. He said, yes, you are. He cusses at him, and he says, I don't know the man. You see, what had happened was Peter should have prayed, but he slept. And therefore, he was drunk with his own autonomy, with his own, his own ambition, and with the fear of man. Jesus prayed, and he was sober. He was self-controlled. And he was resolved to do everything that was necessary to accomplish the glory of God. And I think what he's doing here is telling us if we don't pray, it's an indication that we are soaked up in drunkenness, in, in the lack of self-control that, that consumes the age of this world. Let me tell you, every semester across the United States, there are college freshmen who are Christians who enroll in a school and they come onto campus and, and they, they leave their family behind, they leave their church behind, they leave their old friends behind, and, and even though it might have been great while they were home, they, they get involved in various activities on a college campus, and they become intoxicated with self-autonomy, with self-independence. I can, I can be whoever I want to be, I can do whoever I want to do, I can hang out with whoever I want to hang out with, and all of a sudden, they, they leave all of their Christianity behind and become totally different people. They become drunk, intoxicated with the lifestyle of the university campus. And it's a sad thing. Some of us have experienced it. Some of us have observed it. And what Peter is saying is, if you're not careful, when you get involved in this world, if you're not careful, you're going to get intoxicated with the lust of the flesh. You're going to get intoxicated with success in life. You're going to get intoxicated with, with financial security. You're going to get intoxicated with all of the things that this world is trying to draw you into, and you're not going to be good for the glory of God. And so pray. Pray. And pray for one another. I, uh, I made the observation from the text that prayer does something. It activates the power of God. You know, I... Doug, Douglas Kelly wrote a book on prayer, and he said what we're really doing in prayer is asking God to come into our human situation with all our many needs and flood our spiritual deadness with his resurrection power. Think about that, y'all. Every time we pray, 
We're saying, God, flood our deadness with your resurrection power. Come in. I think that's what you were doing, Mark. That's exactly what you were doing. I think it's important to understand about prayer what Martin Luther said. He says, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of His willingness. But I will tell you, the end of all things is near, y'all. The time has come. Corey Ten Boom, I think for this reason, said, when a Christian shuns fellowship with other Christians, the devil smiles. When he stops studying the Bible, the devil laughs. But when a Christian stops praying, the devil leaps for joy. Listen, our prayers should be serious. They should be alert. They should be direct. They should be thoughtful. Peter is advocating all of those things to us this morning. By way of application, I just want to tell you, develop a plan for your prayer life. Like tonight, when everybody goes to bed and you've got a little time, take a notebook or take your journal, whatever you do, and ask questions like, uh, when should I pray? Where should I pray? How should I pray? For whom should I pray? And answer all those questions. Listen, one reason why we're not prayerful and one reason why we're, we can have a tendency to be intoxicated and lack self-control in our lives and not see God do wonderful things is because we've got no plan to be prayers in this world. All right, And so we need to develop a plan for prayer. And then the other thing I wanted to say is be accountable in your prayer life. Find somebody either in your family or in this church who's willing to ask you questions about your prayer life. How is your prayer life? Are you enjoying communion with God? Are you enjoying, uh, enjoying the, the uh, relationship that God facilitates in your prayer life? But listen, y'all, let's, let's develop a plan and let's execute that plan and be accountable to it. And it's, it, it will be amazing what God will do. Peter says, pray for one another. He also says, love one another. Look at verse 8 and verse 9. He says, above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. So the first thing you see there is, is he says, love one another fervently. Fervently. Literally, that word fervently means to be stretched out. To be stretched and stretched and stretched and stretched. To continue to go out. Or whether it be outward or deepward or upward, it's a, there's a stretching nature to it. And so what he's conveying is intensity. He's, in, he's, inveying, he's conveying um, cons- consistency and intensity and depth. This word is used in Acts chapter 12, verse 5, when the saints are, are, in, are in a home and they're praying for Peter. Peter's in jail because he's preaching the gospel and uh, there are... Folks who are antagonistic to the gospel, and they're praying, and they're saying, God, with resurrection power, would you, would you cause Peter to be delivered? He needs to preach the gospel and win souls to Christ, Lord. And so they, for hours, they pray fervently, the text says. And what happens? The shackles on his wrist come off and off of his legs. The bars in the prison open up, and Peter walks out of the prison. Why? Because they prayed fervently. Peter now says, just as they prayed for me fervently in a stretched out, deep, intense manner, I want you to love each other that way. I want you to care for each other that way. 
I want it to be deep. I want it to be intense. I want there to be some uncomfortableness about it as you stretch yourself, as you sacrifice yourself and your family and your means and all of these things, but go deep in your love for others, he says. I think that Peter would say this. This is the tone and tenor of this command, y'all. Fervent love is the enemy of surface love. Surface love enjoys the pleasantries of conversation. Surface love smiles at one another. Surface love asks how you're doing when you see one another once a week. But surface love is common. As a matter of fact, uh, I've had a number of northerners who have visited down to the south before or even moved to the south. And, and one of the things that they're taken back by is how people are so nice. Nice. And in fact, people in the south are nicer than people in the north. <clears throat> but I will tell you this. Peter's calling nobody to be nice. He's saying be loving. Stretch your love for other people. It's more than just smiling. It's more than just speaking. It's more than just saying, how you doing? It's saying, I love you. I want the best for you. And I'm willing to sacrifice whatever I have so that you can get whatever's best for you. That's fervent love for one another. And that's what he's calling us to. But he's not only calling us to love one another fervently, he's saying love one another graciously. Look at that phrase that says, love will cover a multitude of sins. Peter's drawing on Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12 here. And Proverbs 10, 12 says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers sins. And, and so what, I, what you really need to know right here is that Peter is not saying sweep sins under the rug, pretend they don't happen and move on and just let sin reign in the body of Christ. That's not what he's saying at all. He's kind of going back to this surface love versus real fervent love kind of idea. And he's saying you love one another so fervently, you care for one another so, so much, so that when, when you have two Christians who are walking together and doing life together and they're loving one another but one christian sins against this christian and it creates a gap between the two in fellowship this christian says i am unwilling i'm unwilling for there to be a gap in our relationship I'm unwilling not to be in fellowship with this person. I'm unwilling for her to live on that island and me to live on this island and we exist for the rest of our time here. I'm, I'm going to go to that person and say, I love you. You hurt me with your sin, but I forgive you and I want to be restored in relationship with you so that we can walk together, not apart from one another. That's what he means when he says love covers a multitude of sins. It's the pursuit of reconciliation in the, in the face of of isolation and saying, let's do life together. Now, I want to make a statement here. And I want to say that we have something special here at Redeemer Church. I believe that. I believe that love governs our body. I believe that we care for one another. I believe that we sacrifice for one another. I believe that we pray for one another. I believe that it's genuine. But we need to be warned by this passage. Because all it takes 
is for you and I to retreat, to turn back, to close our doors, to not let anybody in our homes, to not reach out, to not spend time with one another, and we start showing up for church and giving nice little pleasantries. We smile at one another. We say amen at the end of the service, and we go home. And let me tell you what happens. Fervent love is zapped out of a body like that. And it's almost like a giant vacuum cleaner comes in and sucks out all of the gospel affection and all of the sacrificial nature of love. And what's left could be found at the local YMCA or Kiwanis Club or Elks Lodge. Let Redeemer Church be warned. Let us be warned and love one another fervently and graciously with one another. And then he says, love one another hospitably. He says, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Interestingly, the original term, hospitable, it means to exercise love for strangers. Be a friend to strangers. So when when Peter is using it, it's like he's saying, love the people that God has sovereignly put in your life. Love strangers in such a way that they're no longer strangers, they're your friends. Love acquaintances in such a way that they're no longer acquaintances, they're your friends. Love your, your brothers and sisters in Christ so much that they're no longer just somebody that you know, but they're somebody you care for deeply. Exercise hospitality, but hospitality has a specific context. Does anybody know the specific physical context in which hospitality normally refers to? Your home. It's your home. If you read through the Bible, you see it frequently. I just looked at the New Testament. You know, Martha exercised hospitality toward Jesus and his followers, and she invited them into her home. She cooked for them, she served them, and she graciously hosted them, and they were blessed because of it. I uh, got a text from one of our members who's not going to be able to be here this morning uh, because of health concerns, and they said they were reading Acts chapter 2, verses 44 to 47. And I thought that was so ironic and so providential because the very first church in Jerusalem, listen to this, sold their possessions and goods, divided them among all as anybody had need. They broke bread from house to house and ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. That was the picture of hospitality of the very first church in Jerusalem. We see it over and over in the, in the Bible. But let me tell you, if you're taking notes right now, I want you to write down this. Hospitality is openness hospitality is openness it's opening your heart first it's opening your home it's opening your wallet it's opening your refrigerator it's opening yourself that's what hospitality is it starts in the heart it works to the home it goes to your resources it goes to what you have so let me tell you this is the deal it's not a mere formality because when you invite people into your home and you sit down in a living room or in a den or around a dining room table, and you spend time with one another, you know what you're doing in your own home? You're allowing yourself to be known. You're allowing yourself to be seen. You're allowing yourself to say, hey, here we are. This is who, this is who we are. This is what's important to us. This is what we love. This is what we struggle with. These are our kids. This is our situation. And we're okay to be seen. We're okay to be known. And not only that, we want to know you. We want to see you. Let me tell you, there's something about hospitality that reflects the intimacy and the communion that the Trinity enjoys within himself. There's something about knowledge and communion and depth. I, I have a hero. One of my heroes is R.C. Chapman. He lived in the 1800s. He was a contemporary of C.H. Spurgeon. 
Spurgeon said that R.C. Chapman was the saintliest man I ever knew. This man hosted people in his home all the time. He made it a, a life ministry. And one of the men who stayed in his home for about two months was a missionary who had been discouraged on the mission field, had seen failure, had seen discouragement. And he stayed in Chapman's home for a couple of months, and then he wrote about it. And I want to read to you what he said about the hospitality of Chapman. He said, The whole ordering of his house had in view not only the comfort, but the spiritual, mental, and physical well-being of the many who came for rest. It struck me at the time as being in its arrangement and conduct an ideal Christian household. The, the wisdom of retiring and rising early was taught by precept and example. Love and reverence for the scriptures and subjection to them formed the very atmosphere of the house. There, too, the table talk was turned to spiritual ends as I've never to the same degree elsewhere known. An ordinary meal became an agape love feast, more helpful than many a long meeting. It was an ideal home for a tired or discouraged worker or for a despondent or perplexed Christian. Listen to this. A stay there for days or weeks could not but deeply influence the whole aftercourse of a Christian. Do you realize that in exercising hospitality, you and I have the opportunity to change, to alter the trajectory of a person's life for the rest of their life? when we open up ourselves and our hearts and our gospel to people. I can tell you this. Jamie and I have been in homes where we walked inside a home. And when we walked inside, we thought one way. We felt one way. We were living one way. And when we walked out, we thought and felt and pursued something totally different. That is the power of hospitality. Now, the final thing that he he says here, by way of encouragement, he says, minister to one another. He says, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. Peter establishes some facts here. The facts that uh, he establishes are very important for us to observe. If you just kind of look down at verse 10 and verse 11, one of the facts that he's saying here is if you're a Christian, you have received at least one spiritual gift to bless the body of Christ. It's a fact. All right? I know it's a fact because Peter says it, because the whole New Testament says it, and nowhere in the New Testament... Do any of the writers or any of the speakers say, now there's some of you Christians who don't really have a gift. And because you don't have a gift, you can just show up passively and participate on Sunday mornings and then just go home and live your life because God hasn't been gracious to you. That's never stated in the New Testament. Instead, over and over and over again, it's about you have a gift, use your gifts. And so the other fact that he says here is, is essentially, if you're not regularly exercising your gifts to bless the body, then you're sinning. And you're depriving the body of edification and you're stunting the growth of the, of the church of Jesus Christ. Now guys, that's serious business. You hide your gift. You store up your gift. You go put it in a closet. 
you stay home, you're sinning. You're depriving us from, from growing. And you're stunning the growth of the church of Jesus Christ. That is a big deal. I'd like for you to read Matthew 25, 14 to 30 sometime today or tomorrow. Jesus has uh, some very pointed things to say about the receiving of gifts and the investment of them or the lack thereof. We don't have time right now to look at that passage. But I want you to go to that passage tonight or tomorrow, and I want you to ask the question, how important is it for me to use the gifts that God's given me? How important is it for me to use the gifts that God has given me? I think you will be motivated by the answer. Now, he gives us really two kinds of gifts, speaking gifts and serving gifts. The speaking gifts, he's primarily talking about preaching and teaching and counseling. Hey, listen, he's saying, when you preach, preach as if it's the very word of God. When you teach, teach as if it's the very word of God. When you counsel, counsel the scriptures, counsel the gospel, counsel the word so that people can receive wisdom and encouragement and comfort and love and grace. He's saying that. But he's saying when you serve, Serve as with the ability which God supplies, which the manifold grace of God is, is, is giving you the ability to do. All right, so I think Peter would say, identify your gifts, identify the needs of this body, and use your gifts to build the body. That would, that would almost be a formula, y'all. You note takers, write it down. Know your gifts, know, your need, know the needs, and use your gift to meet the needs. I think what happens in church a lot is that people say, well, I've got these talents and I've got these abilities and this is what I really want to do because I feel that this is, this is what um, I feel in my heart I need to express. But that role is taken and so I guess the Lord just wants me to sit back. I want to tell you, God gives us gifts know that not so that we can feel fulfilled, but so that we can meet needs. God gives us gifts so that we can, we can pursue people in love and we can free other people up so that great things can, can happen. But let me tell you, things like, uh, well, my greatest gift may not be this. But the person who's doing this right now, he's really good at evangelism. And I can do that easily. What if I go to that person and say, would you like me to do this for you so that you can, instead of doing this at the church, go out and preach the gospel? I want to meet that need so that other needs can, can, can be met. Right, that's the kind of idea I think that Peter is talking to us about. Use it as the manifold grace of God and, to, and display and express the grace of God. Now, he talks about manifold. It means multicolored, multifaceted. It means a plethora of grace and a plethora of, of supply of that which God has given for the edification of the church. And y'all, I want you to listen to this. It's a key principle I'm going to read it exactly as I wrote it, but listen closely. The church is not a place where doing just enough to get by is acceptable before God, encouraging to people, or effective in evangelism. I was reading through the Bible. I'm in that read through the Bible in a year plan. There's nowhere God actually says do just enough to get by. He sets up a tabernacle, and it's a glorious tabernacle. He sets up a temple. It's an excellent temple. He has a kingdom. He, he, there is a heaven, 
And, and when the picture is painted of His kingdom and of His heaven in the book of Revelation and in Isaiah and Ezekiel, it is glorious. It is beautiful. It is infinite in, in, in being mesmerized by the, by the beholding of it. And I think Peter would say, Church, use your gifts in such a way that doing good enough, doing just enough to get by is not good enough, but, but do everything you can to build up the body of Christ, to make it a glorious place, a loving place, an interesting place, uh, an enjoyable place, a place of worship, a place of edification, a place of grace. And if you're doing anything less than that, you're sinning. But you know what it takes? It takes every one of us working hard. I got a list. I got some help with the list. I'm just not going to have time to go through it today. But under our four pillars, I've got like five or six bullets here under each pillar about ways in which you can use your gifts to build up the body of Christ. All right. I would love to show them to you. I would love to share them with you. And I'd love for you to take uh, some of these roles and use your gifts for the glory of God. Well, let's look at the final important consideration. It's the result. He, he, he's saying, look, pray for one another, love one another, serve one another. And now he's going to give us the result, the purpose. He says that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. There is one overarching purpose for the church to remain on the gospel road, even in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, and in the midst of hostility. And that purpose is the glory of God in the person of Christ. Our aim, our ambition, our goal is to magnify the worth of Jesus. Let me tell you something, church. God is more glorified when you serve as you're suffering than when you thank Him for all the good gifts that He regularly gives you. Now, you should thank Him for everything He gives you. And it should be to His glory. But when you're suffering and enduring hardship and you roll up your sleeves and by the very grace that God supplies, you love people and you show hospitality to people and you use your gifts, the greatness and beauty and glory of God is seen in a way that it can't in any other way. And so this is what Peter is saying. He's saying, you guys, love one another. Pray for one another. Serve one another. Because the end of all things is near. The king is returning. And everyone's going to give an account. And you give an account for the way that you've expended yourself for the glory of Jesus Christ. I'd like for you to bow your heads right now. I want you to spend about a minute. I want you to ask yourself the question, am I sober? Am I clear-minded? Am I praying for the people of God? Am I loving the people of God? And am I serving the people of God? Seriously, ask yourself that question right now. We're going to have a couple of men I think Mark and Wayne are going to be in the back. And I want to challenge you. If there are areas of disobedience in your life where you need to love, you need to pray, you need to serve, 
I encourage you by way of accountability and by way of strength, go back and see these men, even as we sing, that they may pray with you and help you to fulfill your calling to which you've been called for the glory and praise of God.